0: All right, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, If you were here last week, we came to an end of chapter 18, which means that we came to an end of that fourth major discourse that we've been walking through in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have come to an end to Jesus' famous ministry in Galilee. Now, as we come into chapter 19, the narrative begins to shift a little bit And it takes a dramatic turn as Jesus and his disciples head towards Jerusalem where the cross awaits him. Now, as we come into Matthew chapter 19, at first, before he makes his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, which we'll get to in 21, Jesus first goes beyond Jerusalem, uh, southwest, southeast, to Judea, just beyond the Jordan River, because he's still got some more ministry to do. And in this ministry, he continues to teach about, explain, and to make clear the kingdom of God and life therein. And as he does, we're going to notice him confronting many held beliefs and presuppositions about life and religion that were held back then and by some of us today. So let's go ahead and read, starting in chapter 19 with verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it not better to not marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, this saying that Peter just said, not the one that Jesus just said, but what Peter just said. He said, not everybody can receive that. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the the parents, the people who brought the kids. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid hands on them and they went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to them, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard that, he went his way sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, "'Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God.' And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, "'Who then can be saved?' But Jesus looked at them and said, "'With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible.' Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, one of the son of man will sit on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again, about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, go into the vineyard too. And when, every, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what, bring, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful again that you've given us this morning to come together as friends and brothers to humbly look upon your word and by the power of your spirit seek to apply it to our life, that we might not simply be informed by your word, but truly transformed by it, that we might be like Christ in the world, a city on the hill, bringing glory to your name. Help us, O Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you read the book of Acts, uh, when the gospel took root in Acts and the church was established And the kingdom of God advanced. Everything was turned upside down. A couple examples. In Acts 11, when a couple of preachers went to that great city Antioch and started preaching the gospel, scores of Jews and Gentiles were converted. And when they did, amazing things happened. Their lives changed. Their relationships changed. Everything about them changed. And they were truly a disruption To everything that had come before, they were a disruption to the social order, so much so that the non-believers there had to invent a word to describe these people. You know what that word was? Christians. What a great testimony. That's where we got our name. We were a disruption to the the social order that when the gospel takes root, the church is established and the kingdom of God advances. The only explanation of what's going on is a new word. It's called Christians. Another example, in Acts 17, when Paul and his brothers went to Thessalonica and started preaching there, the same thing happened. People were converted. And these new Christians with new hearts and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, new life in Jesus Christ, everything about them changed too. Their relationships changed. The way they did business changed. The way they lived life changed. And it was such a disruption to the commonly held beliefs and and presuppositions by the Jews and the Romans about life and religion That they were outraged. In fact, a couple of non-believing Jews ransacked a house of a man named Jason, got him by the shirt tail, drug him out through the front door, and brought him to the Roman uh, Roman officials. And they bewailed. These wackos who've been turning the world upside down have come here too. What are we going to do about this? What a wonderful testimony of the gospel. Things change when the gospel takes root. Now, what's really interesting that those opponents of the gospel, even though they spoke better than they knew, they only got it partly right, right? Because when the gospel takes root and the church is established and the kingdom of God goes forth, the world does change. But rather than turning it upside down, what Jesus is doing is turning the world right side up. Because when the fall broke everything, and the fall did break everything, it broke every single one of us, every institution, it broke the world. When the fall broke everything, Jesus is now in the business of restoring everything. And everything we thought we knew about life as fallen people, Jesus is redefining. He is making things new and he is showing us as his people how to live life as it was meant to be lived. Now as he's teaching that in these couple of verses or uh, rather chapters before he enters Jerusalem, we're going to see that as he teaches about this new life, he's going to confront and dismantle certain presuppositions and held beliefs. Things about the wisdom of the day, he's going to challenge that and dismantle it. He's also going to challenge and dismantle the problem of religion and our understanding of what success is. And as he does that, we learn amazing, beautiful things about the kingdom and life therein. So let's look at the first one. In verses 1-12 through in chapter 19, Jesus confronts the wisdom of the day. Now, as Jesus begins this new phase of his ministry, the first major scene that we see, this is very unusual confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees over matters of divorce and marriage and remarriage. Now, I got to confess to you, when I was studying this, I had no idea why this was placed where it is. Because remember, we've already studied Jesus' teaching on divorce. He's already gotten into it. The Pharisees about divorce back in the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem in this very climactic episode of his ministry, I just could not understand why, again, this was being brought up. I asked Todd and others. Then finally, it dawned on me as I was studying uh, some of the commentaries that as we move back out and understand the general context of chapters 19 and 20, Not only are we going to understand some really cool things that Jesus, challenging things that Jesus says about marriage, but we're also going to see something really amazing that he says about kingdom, particularly the wisdom of the kingdom. Uh, There's this scholar, New Testament scholar, who I really like. Write his name down. If you are interested in building your library, his name is Benjamin Glad, and he wrote a book called The Handbook of the Gospels. It's a really great book. Write it down. Use it if you'd like. But he says here in verses 1 through 12 is a classic conflict story that we often see in the ministry of Jesus and elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And he says the conflict here is between the Jewish leaders who prided themselves in their wisdom, the Jewish leaders who prided themselves in the knowledge of the scriptures and as guardians of the oral tradition, that is those extra traditions and those extra laws they added to to God's word. They prided themselves in their wisdom and their knowledge of those things. The conflict is between them and Jesus, the unrivaled teacher, wisdom incarnate, God on earth. Verses 1 through 12 is a battle scene. And much like Daniel before him, what Jesus is doing here, he's demonstrating the superiority of God's wisdom over the wisdom of the day. All right, so that's where we get the title for this point. Jesus is demonstrating God's wisdom as superior to the wisdom of the day. And we see this in Jesus's answers to the three questions that are posed to him, two by the Pharisees and one by the disciples. So what I'd like to do in these first 12 verses is just think about these three questions that Jesus answers. The first question we see in verses 4 through 6 when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, says, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" Now, back then, much like today, divorce was rampant. But back then, it was especially so amongst the Jewish leaders. They were getting divorced right and left. And there was essentially two schools of thought when it came to divorce. One by the Halil Jewish leaders who said that you really could get divorced for any reason you would like. I mean, if your wife burnt the bread, that's reason to leave. If she, you know, torched Thanksgiving turkey, that's reason to pack your bags, okay? That's what they taught. There was another school of thought, the Shammai, who said the only way you can get divorced is if your wife committed adultery or some form of indecency. Okay, so they're a little bit more conservative in their application of divorce, but remember the penalty for a woman uh, committing adultery back then was being stoned to death, right? In either case, deference was shown to the men. There was no oral tradition that protected the women. There was no oral tradition that gave them rights in the matter. This deference was particularly shown to men, and the offenses and the, the, uh, the uh, consequences of offenses were severe. But nevertheless, there was a debate going on between these two schools of thought. Jesus, which one of us is right? Now, the way that Jesus answered this, they did not expect it. Okay? I mean, he blew both their minds, both groups of leaders. And this is essentially what he did. He rejected their starting point in this whole argument. He says, you guys, you're approaching this particular context off the wrong foot. You are concerned about you. You're starting with the me rather than starting with God. Think about it. He's talking to Jewish leaders who prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. and He goes, guys, you are starting in the wrong place. So what does Jesus do? He brings them back to the very beginning, and he quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, God, he creates man and woman in his image. Genesis 2, he establishes marriage with all of its glorious purposes. All right? And so in so doing, he is showing these folks that they have traded the wisdom of God for the wisdom of this world. They have exalted the self. They have exalted their selfish desires over God's design. And he's saying, listen, guys, you're looking at your wives, you're looking at your marriage, and you're asking this question, what freedom do I have here? But really what you should be doing is looking at your marriage and looking at your spouses and asking what is God's will in this? And so the question is, what is God's will? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing them back to the original design and purposes of God. What is God's will? Well, Paul lays it out clean in Ephesians 5, doesn't he? You remember Ephesians 5 when he commands both husbands and wives to submit to one another? And the way that husbands submit to their wives is by loving them as Christ loves his bride, the church. How does Christ love his bride, the church? Well, Paul tells us he died for her. That's how we're to love our spouses. We're to make ourselves nothing for their embetterment. And Jesus is saying here that that God's design for marriage is to illustrate that the greater marriage that that he has with his people and that we're to love them with a selfless covenant love, our spouses, as Christ has loved us. This, This is God's design, right? And so Jesus is making the point that that worldly tradition exalts the self. It exalts human prerogatives. Godly wisdom, kingdom wisdom, focuses on God's will. Now, there's a second question, and the Pharisees try to trap him here. They say, okay, Jesus, you got us there. You brought us back to Genesis 1 and 2, but what about this? Moses commanded a certificate of divorce that we could leave our wives. What about that? Are you greater than Moses, Jesus? And they're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Now, of course, they're misappropriating that passage out of Deuteronomy, what Matthew said. They're misusing it. They're, they're, they're taking what was a provision of sin and making it law, right? Now, isn't it interesting that they're misappropriating Scripture? That's the same tactic that Satan used in the garden, or rather in the desert, to to trap Jesus. He pitted Scripture against Scripture, misapplying it in order to trap Jesus. That's exactly what these Jewish leaders, these priests, these pastors were doing to Jesus. They they took what was supposed to be a provision for their sin and, and made it law. Now, why would they do that? Well, again, they did it for the benefit of themselves. (laughs) <laughs> they were focused on themselves. I mean this is this is strange. This is that this whole meistic culture that we have in the 21st century, we're seeing it crop up way back then in the 1st century. They were taking scripture and manipulating it to say what they wanted to say in order to bless themselves. That's what they were doing. So Jesus pokes a hole in their argument. And here's just kind of a modern day example. This is what Jesus is saying. Imagine that you go buy a new car and there's an instruction manual In the dashboard, and and it tells you what to do if you get into a car wreck. It's very useful if you to get in a car wreck. But you guys are acting like the manufacturer of the car wants you to get into a car wreck. The manufacturer of the car doesn't want you to get in a car wreck. He's just allowing you and telling you what to do in case you do. This is this is a just in case provision. So what Jesus is saying here, Jewish leaders. God's will for you is to selflessly love your spouse as as God loves you. To be in covenant with them, which resembles and manifests the covenant that, that God has with you. But guess what? This is a sinful world. It's a broken world. You're going to sin. Your spouse might sin. And if tragedy strikes, if someone commits infidelity... This is one route you could take. That's what Jesus is saying. You've, you've completely taken a provision for sin and i have made it law for your benefit to wiggle your way out of covenant responsibilities. But think about where we're reading this, all right? Because Jesus, again, he's doing something new in the Gospels. Uh, this is far greater than the time of Moses. He's establishing the new kingdom, right? And what is he doing in the new kingdom? Jesus is going to our hearts and he is dealing with our sin problem. Christ already has done with our sin problem on the cross. He is dealing with our sin problem through the Holy Spirit. On the day to come, our sin problem will be no more. And for kingdom citizens, this is how we apply it. Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on that day to come when you, the true bride, Israel, new Israel, the church... You behold your truer and greater spouse, Jesus Christ, face to face on that glorious day to come when everything's made perfect. I, keep, I, wanna, I want you to focus your eyes on that day and live in light of that day, new kingdom citizens. Because I'm doing something in your heart. I'm giving you a new heart. I'm going to indwell you with my spirit. You're going to have new life, which means now that you are able to love your spouse as, as selflessly as I have loved you. And even if you do sin, even if they sin against you, divorce isn't mandated. In fact, what you ought to do, new citizen, dwelt by my spirit, is to to repent quickly, to forgive as liberally as, as I have forgiven you, and seek restoration. Everything's changed. Now, after the disciples heard Jesus say that, they kind of freaked out a little bit. Because Jesus means business, and so they asked the third question, and they said, Jesus, well, if this is so, and this is what you're commanding us to do, isn't it just better not to marry, you know, so we can stay focused on kingdom matters, which, you know, 2,000 years after the fact is kind of funny, right, because one of the guys that asked that question was Peter, who, by the way, was married, right, so he's asked, Jesus, how do I get out of this, how do I get out of this contract I have, do you think that his wife found out about this, how hilarious would that have been, I bet his brother Ratted them out, whatever their version of a futon was. You better believe Peter was sleeping on that bad boy. But what's happening here? Why did they ask that question? Well, if you read our commentary written by Ross, he says the disciples were not showing how devoted they were to kingdom ministry, right? But rather, listening to Jesus' commands, they were shrinking back because their hearts were too focused on themselves, just like the Pharisees. They were worried about what following Jesus meant. It's like, are you serious? You're, you're really playing that type of hardball with us, Jesus? Well, and so essentially what they were doing in this passage and in the one that precedes this one, that follows it, and they shoo the children away because, again, that's another responsibility. They're showing that they, too, were too taken in by the wisdom of the world. This was the, the main question on their heart. They were asking Jesus, what is the least that we can do and still be considered obedient? That's what was in their heart as they asked that question. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds very familiar to me. I mean, how often, you might not have said those words in your prayer, but how often have we thought and lived as if, what is the least I can do to be obedient? That's where they were coming from. They they were enraptured by the wisdom of the day, right? Because just like today, back then, the wisdom of the day was all about the self, It was all about your personal freedom. It was all about your personal rights, your pleasure, your joy. That was the rule of the day, over and against other people. And in this particular example, marriage and family, Jesus says when you give into that wisdom of the day, it wreaks havoc. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your family. It will destroy your kingdom witness to the world. Now, there's many things we learn about marriage here. First off, if you're not married yet and you're still single, give yourself to kingdom work. It's a wonderful investment. If you're married and have a family, those things are not a distraction from the kingdom. In fact, you could say that's your most important kingdom work now, to love your spouse as Christ loves His, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You don't have to go overseas. Love your family, is what Jesus is saying. And if you're divorced for biblical reasons, rest in the gospel. Allow the gospel to heal you. Run to the arms of your true and greater spouse who loves you now and forever and unconditionally. If you're divorced unbiblically, the basic takeaway is repent vertically to the Lord, repent horizontally to your former spouse, but also rest in the gospel because you are forgiven too. But the main takeaway, what Jesus is pressing home here as His kingdom citizens, brothers, don't follow the wisdom of this world. Follow me is what Jesus is saying. Psalm 1 Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, the counsel of those who do not know God, but he who delights in the law of God. He's like a tree who is planted by streams of living water. Proverbs 1 Fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. True wisdom. Wisdom where we follow the Lord, trust Him, and believe Him. Jesus says, listen to my voice, not the voices of this world. Not the voices of your fallen heart. Listen to me. Wisdom incarnate. And I promise you, you will flourish as kingdom citizens. And in this passage, you'll flourish in your marriage too, even when it's difficult. So he confronts the wisdom of the world. Secondly, he confronts the problem of religion. And we see this primarily in the story of the rich young ruler. Now, this rich young he was rich in two ways. First off, he, was, he had great moral wealth, if you can put it like that. He was highly religious, right? He was morally excellent. If you're, if you're taking him at face value, he's, he's done well with that second tablet of the Ten Commandments, those commandments that have to deal with our horizontal relationships with one another. He was well thought of in the community. He was also rich monetarily. Back then, most Jews weren't rich. Very few young Jewish people were rich, but this guy was both. Now, if you put those two things together, what that meant was that this young ruler was a catch, okay? I mean, he was a cool dude. He had his life put together as about as well as you could have your life put together. He was that guy. He was well-rounded. Any Jewish leader would have wanted this guy in their synagogue, okay? He was like a top-notch churchgoer. They loved this guy. He was even humble, right? Because he went to Jesus and said, hey, I know that I'm missing something here. Um, Can you help me with it? He was humble. He was was put together. Now, back then, just like today, uh, we have a tendency to think that if you're doing well in life, it's because you've done good in life too, right? It's not really health and wealth, gospel prosperity, but it's that idea that if 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 I'm doing well in this life, if I've got a lot of money, if I have a good family, just everything's going well. I mean, all my kids are in the soccer league. We won the tournament last weekend. Everything's awesome. It's because, well, God's blessing you because you've done good. We tend to think that way. And people thought that way about him. He was was put together. But what Jesus does is astonishing. And what Jesus shows us in his answer, which we're about to talk about, is that Christianity is 100% different than religion. And the difference is a matter of entering into the kingdom of God and walking away grieved, like this man. Why did he walk away grieved? Well, to put it frank, is because Jesus dismantled his religion. This man had a huge problem of religion. What were the problems? First off, religion says that we must add something. I'm getting a lot of this, this section from Tim Keller, who's very helpful for me. Religion says that we must add something, verses 20 through 22. This man knew that he lacked something in his relationship with God. He lacked his assurance of salvation. Right, He needed peace and he wanted peace. And the way that he pursued peace and the way that he approached God was, 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 was with this understanding that Christianity was something that you added to your already well put together life. And we see that how he, how he poses the question in verse 20 through 22 Jesus, what do I still lack? That's what he asked Jesus. What am I still lacking? My life is pretty good, Jesus, but I know that I'm missing something. What do I need to add to it? I'm well rounded. What do I need to add? Now, Jesus' answer is astonishing, and again, we'll get to it in just a second, but what Jesus is showing us, right, is that Christianity is not like religion. You don't add something. In fact, Christianity is what Jesus is describing here. Christianity is an explosion, and it destroys us redemptively in order to make us new. It's not about adding something, it's about being made new. John 3, Nicodemus, Jesus, how do I enter and see the kingdom of God? Well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say you got to add something. He says you got to be destroyed redemptively and be made new, entirely new. Now isn't that challenging for us who live down in the Bible Belt? I remember, you know, I went to Ole Miss. I love Ole Miss. I'm pulling for them in two weeks against Bama. It's going to be amazing. But when I went to Ole Miss, I was surrounded just neck deep in that southern Bible Belt culture where we're told to be well-rounded Christians. Don't be a Jesus freak. Don't be weird about it. Just be moral. Do the right thing. Go to church. Say that you're a Christian. And that's good. Most of us were raised in that environment. But Jesus says, listen, being a Christian has nothing to do with being well-rounded. It's not about adding something. You need to be made new. You need to be sold out for me, is what Jesus is saying. This guy was not ready to hear that, and so he walked away grieved. Here's another problem of religion. Religion says that we must do something. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to enter the kingdom? What good deed must I do? Now, again, Jesus confronts that. He says, there's only one person who's good. But to answer that question, let's just think about the Ten Commandments. Okay, You say that you've done... The, the, the second tablet really well. Okay, that's wonderful. But let's just think about that first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's apply that, young ruler. Okay? I want you to go off and sell everything that you have. Why? Because I'm God and I asked you to. He walked away grieved. Because the answer that Jesus gave him for how do I, what would what, what I must do to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, I want you to become poor. I want you to become poor. And this man's face just melted. Now, what is Jesus doing here theologically? Let's just apply this to ourselves, okay? Jesus is saying, listen, the truth is not one of you does the first commandment. Not one of you loves God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. Not one of you. And so he's looking at these, he's looking at this young ruler. And he's saying, friend, you think your problem is is that you're 99% good and you just need to sprinkle a little bit of goodness on the top. Your true problem is is that you're failing to admit and understanding and realizing that down deep in your heart, you're not good at all. That's the problem of religion because it deludes us into thinking that if we add something and do something, if we go to amen every Thursday, if if we do our tithes, if we go to Sunday school, if we bring donuts to Sunday school, that's brownie points. If we do those things, that makes us good. But what Jesus is saying here, Christians, men of amen, kingdom citizens, it doesn't matter how good you think you are how good your pastor thinks you are. Down deep in your heart, you're a mess and I'm a mess too, is what Jesus is saying. And the only way that you can have peace, the only way that you can enter the kingdom of God, the only way is by humbly admitting that you need me, is what Jesus says. Which leads us to our 3rd subpoint of this second major point. Christianity says that we must receive Christ by faith. That's the difference. Just beneath the veneer of religion to this man's heart, Jesus goes, Jesus goes beneath the veneer. And as he does, he speaks to this man in love. Now, we don't see that here in Matthew. If you just look at the Matthew account of the rich young ruler, it looks like Jesus is being really mean. But if you look at the other accounts, particularly Mark, Mark tells us that Jesus spoke to this man with love in his eyes. So just think about this. Jesus is looking at this this boy. Imagine it's one of your sons, because he's probably that age. And he's looking at this boy, he's saying, what I'm about to say is going to hurt you. Because this religion that you have, this doing and this adding, it's blinded you to this idol that's in your heart, and it's a cancer, and it's killing you. And I'm going to rip it out. I want want you to see this, this death that you have around your neck. So I'm going to bring this idol to the surface. I want you to go sell off everything you've got. Now this man might have repented later. We don't know. I like to think that he did. But what Jesus was doing is he was bringing to the surface what was preventing this man from throwing himself on the mercy lap of Christ. Money in and of itself is not evil. It's dangerous because it's one of those things that blind us to our need of Christ. And being a Christian does not mean that you have to be poor. It did for this man because it was the monster and the idol in his heart. Jesus is telling us, whatever your monster is, Jesus is saying, I want you, every bit of you. And I'm going to rip out of your life whatever is blinding you to the fact that you're in desperate need of me. Because what each and every one of us need is Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus loves you so much that he will destroy you redemptively in order to make you new. And this man was not ready to hear that in this point, And so he walked away grieved. Now, after Jesus has done this, Peter got really frightened. He said, my goodness, if this well put together young man can't get into the kingdom of God, what hope do we have, Jesus? And Jesus says, that's the point, Peter. That's what I want you to see. On human terms, it's impossible for this rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But it's also impossible for you too, Peter. You cannot do it by yourself. It's not about earning your way into heaven. It's not about achieving your way into heaven because you can't do it. But here's the good news. What's impossible with you is not impossible with God. Jesus is saying that we can't earn our way into heaven. We can't achieve our way into heaven. We can't brown nose our way into heaven. We can't white polish our smile into heaven. We have to understand that we are completely helpless. We have to have the humility of a child to throw ourselves onto the mercy lap of Jesus, understanding that our only hope is by grace and grace alone. Now, what's really interesting is that after this, uh, in verses... 27 through the end of chapter 20, Jesus confronts our understanding of success, which is closely tied to what he just says about religion, that we're saved by grace and grace alone. Uh, Peter, again, is, is, is dumbstruck by what Jesus has just said, and it causes him to pose a question in verse 27. Jesus, unlike this rich man, we have left everything to follow you. Right? But then he asks, but what does that mean for us? What do we have now? It's really interesting that Peter just hears the gospel, and then he immediately asks, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. But I've been thinking about the cost of discipleship. If I follow you, that means that, that you want everything about me. You want everything I have. So what does that mean for me now? Am I going to be left destitute? Is, is this life really worth it? Is kind of what Jesus or what Peter's asking. Now just think about it. We've talked about this before, that the world's idea of the blessed life and success is is a little flimsy. We talked about this really when we were doing the Sermon on the Mount. That the world's idea of the blessed life and success, it usually has something to do with power and significance and wealth and respect. And there's no time, like the present time, to achieve those things. So the world says do everything you can do to grab a hold of those things now, right? That's why the world is eating itself, climbing up the social ladder, trying to get in the head because they want to make a name for themselves now. They want to be satisfied now. It's that idea of success that has crept into, oftentimes, the church. We see a lot of celebrity church pastors fall because they bought into that. We buy into it too. And it looks like Peter had bought into it as well. Jesus, is this life worth it? Now remember, Jesus again, in the Sermon on the Mount, redefined what the blessed life is. Remember? All the things that we have in this life, like money and wealth and family and all that stuff, those are blessings from God, but that's not, that's not the main blessing. That's not what it means to have a blessed life. What is a blessed life? It's to have the favor of God. It's to know that God loves you. It's to know that you are God's guide. It's to know that He's with you and for you and that that He has wrapped you up in His arms and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's having that favor of God what it means to be blessed. And furthermore, Jesus redefines what it means to be successful what it means to live the Christian life, particularly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, where, G, where, where Paul tells us about the life of Jesus, one of my favorite passages, where Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count as equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he put aside his riches, he put aside his glory, and became man, became a servant. The opposite of what this world thinks is successful. Became a servant and died on a cross. What did Paul say next? Therefore, not in spite of, but therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What Paul is telling us there is that that life of Jesus isn't only the means of our salvation, it's also the pattern for kingdom living. That's how we live. That's the pattern for kingdom life, to serve God and to serve others, to lay down our life for the sake of other people just as Christ did for us. To get up, you got to go down. Jesus won through Losing. And he says, Peter, Christians, you want to know what the Christian life is? What it means to be successful? Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, if you try to save your life now, you will lose it. But if you lose yourself for my sake, you will find it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. And then in verse 30, those who are first will be last. But those who are last for my sake will be first. And so Jesus says, Peter, you want to know if this life is worth it, my friend? You have no idea. Christian, you want to know if this life is worth it following me? You have no idea how worth it it is. In verse 28, see what Jesus says. He says that he will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And not only that, but that we as his people will join him in his rule over all things. Paul comments on this in Romans 8. As those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we're the children of God. Which means that we will inherit God's presence. That we will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Brother, do you realize that if you're sitting next to a believer, you're sitting next to royalty? Every single one of us is a trust fund kid in the best sense of the word. You have the new heavens and the new earth ahead of you. Jesus says you are blessed beyond measure. But you're ultimately blessed. You're more significantly blessed, eternally blessed, because we have Christ and we can experience that now. And one commentator says what's equally mind-boggling, even more so, is what Jesus is showing us in this passage is that each and every one of us are his treasure too. You have no idea how worth this life is. Peter. Now that parable of the vineyard, we don't have time to go into it. The main point of it is, is that every single bit of that, brothers, is by grace alone. All of it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to achieve it. In Christ, we are saved simply. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to impress your pastor. With childlike humility, you throw yourself on the mercy lap of Christ, and this is yours. In Christ, we are saved satisfyingly. Do you know why the world eats each other to try to find success and importance now? Because they can't find it in this life. They're scrambling for it. But in Christ, you are satisfied. You will be satisfied on the day to come when that beatific vision, when we hold Christ in his glory. But you can be satisfied now because you're with him now. And in Christ, we are saved eternally. Everything we have wrapped up in Christ. He has won, as George tells us in our Revelation set on Sunday mornings. And in him, brothers, we are more than conquerors too. Jesus is turning the world right side up He is showing us how to live life as it was meant to be lived as his people. A life that glorifies God. A life that's worth it. A life that's satisfying. A life that will cause the world to say what in the heck is happening over there at Amen Bible Study. But here's the deal. We're not perfect yet. We're still sinners. And so this new life will confront us at every turn. And the only way that we can receive this new life and live this new life once we have received it is by believing with childlike humility that Jesus who was rich beyond all splendor, infinitely more rich than this young ruler, that Jesus who was rich beyond all splendor willingly became poor for our sakes so that in him we might become eternally and spiritually rich. Brothers, in Jesus Christ, You are rich beyond your wildest dreams. Let us live by faith together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the gospel that tells us that we're more sinful than we ever dared to imagine. But in Jesus Christ, we're more loved than we ever dared to hope. Help us, O Lord, secure in Christ to live for you and for your namesake. We pray in Christ's name, amen.